Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Phil Dave. Diana Toman. And me, Clive Roslin. Coming up on this show, we are going to be finding out about eight Jewish peers of the House of Lords who have submitted a letter to the Times that rebuke the proposed Westminster Holocaust Memorial. We will be speaking to Lord Eric Pickles about that particular story. We're also going to hear from Rebecca Singer, who is the Head of Communications and Community Engagement at World Jewish Relief, telling us about their latest campaign to try and help the victims of the Indonesian earthquake and tsunami. Plus, we're going to be meeting one Deborah Azagari Slattery and her son Jack, Now, Jack has autism, but don't let that define him because Jack has an incredible art ability. And we're going to find out exactly how that art ability led him to get a rather exclusive tour of EasyJet. Find out more about that a little later on. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, here's Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the proposed new National Holocaust Memorial outside Parliament, which could cost £50 million, but has already been heavily criticised by Jewish peers who lost family in the Shoah. Eight peers, including Lord Grade and Baroness Deitch, wrote a letter to The Times, taking aim at the winning design from architect Sir David Ajay and Anglo-Israeli sculptor Ron Arad, and saying the plans should be dropped and the money used for education instead. Theresa May attacked the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn over his party's anti-Semitism in her Conservative conference speech. She said he and Labour had offered only bogus solutions and that common values once shared by both main parties had been rejected by the Labour leadership. Meanwhile, in Plymouth, Conservative students at the city's university have been called a disgrace by Jewish representatives after pictures emerged of them at a party wearing Hitler moustaches and shirts daubed with the word Yuda alongside a Star of David. Conservative HQ promised there'd be swift action taken against any of its members who were involved. The pictures were widely circulated, including on the front page of the Daily Mirror. Tributes have been paid to the veteran journalist and author Michael Friedland, who's died at the age of 83. Mr Friedland worked for The Economist, The Sunday Telegraph, The Spectator and The Guardian, where his son Jonathan is a columnist. He also wrote biographies of Elvis Presley, Judy Garland and Bob Hope, all entertainers who he regarded as being from a magic generation. And earlier this year, he published his first work, Touching on the Holocaust. And finally, an eight-year-old Jewish boy with learning difficulties had what was called the time of his life on an EasyJet plane after being given VIP access to the airline's Luton Academy, with staff letting him sit in the pilot seat, operate the tannoy system and slide down the evacuation slide. Jack Azaguri Slattery, who has autism and ADHD, was treated to the tour after EasyJet's management team saw drawings he'd done of an EasyJet plane. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, let us begin this episode of The Jewish Views in traditional fashion with a look through your copy of The Jewish News. And joining us to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer. Rich, of course, we are going to glance over the front page, which the headline reads, Parliament is right place for Shoah tribute. Yes, there will be a monument and a learning centre to the Holocaust. It's going to be built opposite Parliament, a very profound place, the cradle of democracy and freedom for us to remember the horrors of the last century. But this is not without criticism and controversy. It took many years for the different designs to be approved. The final one has been approved, which is a, a long 
dark corridors with people emerging out from darkness into light. So quite a, a profound concept behind it. But locals and some uh, Jewish peers have this week come out and said it's not symbolic of what it's trying to recall. It doesn't really convey what it wants to. The area isn't the right area for it. And it's had further criticism in terms of, you know, not in my backyard. People saying that a lot of these things are available nearby, particularly in the Imperial War Museum and they have a, a greater impact than this thing ever will. So Eric Pickles, who uh, Lord Pickles, I should hasten to add, who I know is contributing to the, the show later on, so I won't go into too much detail, and Ed Balls, who are co-chairs of this, have hit back this week in a, in a joint opinion piece in the Jewish News saying uh, this is the right memorial at the right place, and although these criticisms are fair, they are unfounded. I'm greatly pleased by an article that you've headed, Javid, I'll always support Israel, because... A few months ago, the Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, came to Lauderdale Road Synagogue on a Sabbath morning and gave a sermon, and it was most impressive. And in fact, it's the first time I've ever heard it in that synagogue. Everybody applauded, and he specially asked if he may come. And you've written all about this, and, and so tell me something about that. Yes, Sajid Javid was the keynote speaker at Conservative Friends of Israel's Fringe event at the Tory party conference in Birmingham this week. Now, this conference wasn't the the hornet's nest, the, the controversial saga that the Labour Party managed to drum up the previous week. It was a, a, bit, of, a bit of a quiet affair, all told. I wasn't there. My news editor, Justin, frequent contributor to the show, was there instead. And it was a standing room only, apparently. They were turning people away. Sajid Javid is a very popular fella. He is now the bookie's favourite to be the next Tory leader and hopefully, not wishing to tie my political persuasions to the mast, the next Prime Minister, although the Home Office seems to be a, a bit of a problematic place, it seems to be the end of careers at the moment. Remember Amber Rudd was was hot favourite and I don't know where she is now and Theresa May, of course, former Home Secretary. But yes, certainly flavour of the month, Sajid Javid since, who was it, Ruth Davidson decided that she didn't want the Prime Minister's job so she's backed off. So the clear favourite to be hopefully the next leader of our country and he's just saying that he's recalls when he was 10 years old his brother came back from a school trip to Israel and it uh, captured his imagination and ever since then he's had a, a, a fond understanding of, of Israel's challenges and contribution. Yeah rousing uh, speech and we've written all about it in great detail uh, on page two this week. Now let's move to schools. The search begins for our class of 2019. Now this is to do with the award ceremony, isn't it, for the highest profile schools? The Oscars of the Jewish the schools. Yes. Of Jewish schools. So with right. Pages, partnership for Jewish schools, mm. in partnership with them, we, for the fourth year now at JW3, will be hosting early next year, I think it's the end of January, I'm not sure about the actual date, a showcase celebrating all that's great and good about education. Our community has a lot going for it, and I'd say education, schools, academia is probably the number one thing and up until four years ago when we started it, it didn't really have this showcase this opportunity to celebrate people that shape the next generation so we've got I think eight categories all sorts of categories head teachers deputy head teachers specialists special needs lots of different things on on different campuses are going to be celebrated so if you go to jewishnews.co.uk if there was a, a teacher that's really inspiring your child 
and deserves that recognition and respect, then put his or her name forward and hopefully they'll make the shortlist. And the attendances and the categories, I seem to remember, grow from year to year, don't they? Yeah, they change each year. We'll have the the set ones, but also they will change uh, to accommodate different needs and requirements as the years progress. So that's, I think, one of the huge benefits that it is so flexible. Now, on page eight, you have a story that, my goodness me, resonates with me and so many other so-called millennials. The price of living in Golders is the headline. And this is because, well, I actually, I think I'm going to put this, because I know you know the answer, Rich. But I'm going to put this to Diana and to Clive. How much do you think, in terms of being able to obtain a feasible mortgage for Golders Green, would you need before you can live there? What do you think your annual salary would need to be? Um, eighty thousand pounds. Okay, Clive. I would say a bit more than that, ninety thousand pounds. Okay, you're both not far wrong. It is actually, according to this, an annual salary of seventy three thousand pounds to secure a mortgage well, to live in Golders Green. Richard, really? Right, well, look, look. Let's dig deep a little. Firstly, it's not seventy three thousand pounds for a salary. It's a combined couple or it's just for a mortgage so but i'm single so it would have to be a salary yeah if you're you're on your own (laughs) and and also we're talking one bedroom properties here we are not talking mansions or detached piles anywhere this is really your basic entry level bricks and mortar so yes it's extraordinary a website called totally money have basically gone round the the underground. They've gone to all underground stations and they have figured out how much it will cost you to get a mortgage in any of those areas on a one-bed property. So Redbridge is actually the cheapest in terms of the Jewish areas of London, £17,000 for Redbridge, which is slightly more affordable. Brent Cross and Edgware is about £46,000. And if it's not necessarily a Jewish area, but if you want to move to Knightsbridge, it's a quarter of a million. Well, <laughs> so um, you can we'll, go... we'll work towards that, yeah. shall we? <laughs> I think we should point out, though, that if there is anyone listening to this who's ever wondered why it is that younger people struggle to get on the housing ladder, this certainly is an insider. And I can speak from personal experience. You know, at the age of 32, I'm not proud to say I still live at home. But frankly, I don't have a choice. I'm not earning that kind of money. Exactly. And you presumably rather not. That means you'd rather be independent, I imagine. Well, I thought you were going to say I'd rather not earn that kind of money. No, make no mistake, Diana, make no mistake. I'd happily earn that kind of money. But I fear, alas, not. Well, that's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you, Richard. And don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News, and I'm about to talk to Lord Pickles, who's the Honorary Vice-Chair of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. And I want to talk about how eight Jewish peers of the House of Lords have submitted a letter to the Times rebuking the proposed Westminster Holocaust Memorial. Now, you, Lord Pickles, I know are very keen and have, have got quite rightly irritated by this why do you think they've done it? I don't know. That's something that uh, you should ask them. I can't uh, possibly understand why that should be the case. These are colleagues that I know, and they've not spoken to me about it. Uh, so, the well, I've understood a number of them had some reservations about it. I think it would have been very nice if they'd spoken to me first. 
I should mention perhaps at this point that we did invite all eight peers who signed the letter to take part in this show. However, those who have replied to us have declined. And of course, they are welcome to take part in future episodes of The Jewish Views if they so wish. But the building hasn't even been started being built yet, has it? And yet they're complaining about that. Yes, I understand. Now, regularly, I understand that a number of them don't like the look of it. But it was a competition advertised internationally, which we had a number of very distinguished architects uh, competed. The competition was for the specific site. It wasn't for anywhere else in London. We had an exhibition in Westminster Hall that they could have looked and uh, contributed to. It was taken around the country to the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly and a number of other locations and over 11,000 members of the public made a contribution. Now, maybe that they live very busy lives and hadn't noticed that. They've complained about the fact that it's being built in that particular place and yet the Westminster Park is really rather untidy and unpleasant at the moment and it could help it greatly, couldn't it? Well, I wouldn't say it was unpleasant, but this is a park that I've known well, close to 40 years, and uh, I've sort of walked in it since I've been a Member of Parliament and a Member of the House of Lords, so you can say I've walked in it for the best part of 30 years. I know very well it does suffer for poor uh, drainage, so it tends to get very muddy in winter and uh, very dusty in summer. Additionally, the drainage is not helping the trees, the walkways are not really accessible by in, in anybody that uh, is in a wheelchair and we would improve this we would put in better grass we would take better care of the trees put in better better facilities for people in in wheelchairs and after all we're only talking about seven percent of the park will be taken up above ground by the memorial the memorial itself does it look very modern and and rather, to quote the, the peers who've, who've objected, and rather against everything it stands for? Yes, well, I understand. Uh, they, um, they don't like the design. Well, I wasn't part of the panel that picked it. It's from an international architect who's won all kinds of awards. We had a large panel of people that made the final selection. We consulted on the design. As I said, 11,000 people contributed to that. And, you know, as I walk around London, I see many monuments that aesthetically don't please me, but I've never felt that my views were greater than the people who put them in. And it, would, it will be a most magnificent example of the Holocaust, won't it? I mean, it will be, and it will be in the right place. I can't talk about the design. I find it an attractive and exhilarating design, but I, I kind of recognize that that isn't a universal view. But the reason it is there, and the reason why this site is better than any site considered, it is on the street of power and of government, starting from the Houses of Parliament, going along Whitehall, 
Downing Street, beside it are the two great ministries that dealt with the Second World War, and it is on that avenue that the great decisions with regard to our involvement in the Second World War were taken, so that's one of the reasons why it, it, it's there. There is no other site that's being considered. Well, of course, it's the ideal place, I would have thought, because Westminster is the home of democracy, if you like. Yeah. And what we wanted to do is to remind people that Parliament is there to oversee and to protect human rights. And, and we recognise that democracy is, is the final bulwark against uh, tyranny. But it's also there to remind members of Parliament and peers that Parliament has the power to oppress as well as to protect. And it was a compliant legislature in Germany that brought in the Nuremberg Laws. I know this might sound a bit of a strange question, but why does it mean so much to you? We are at a time when the last survivor of the Holocaust for the United Kingdom is likely to no longer be with us. I think within the next 10, 15 years, that's likely to be the case. We know that after great events, after the last survivor, there is a big reassessment we saw that after the French Revolution, all the, the standard sort of history books were created and started in the 1850s. We've seen ourselves with the last survivor of the First World War disappearing. Now, slightly over 100 years ago, my grandfather, my grandfather Pickles Edgar, walked out of a trench in the Somme and a few moments later, most of his friends were killed. Nobody doubts for a second that my grandfather came out of that trench. But there is a number of people, wicked people, that seek to pretend that the Holocaust did not exist or, or would seek to minimise it, who would see, or would seek to suggest the numbers weren't right or the conditions weren't right or that it was a big bout of disease, a flu, and it is massively important for us to remember that a government in one of the most civilized countries in the world decided to murder its Jewish citizens and to murder the Jewish citizens of Europe. And we will look at this in the learning center and we'll look through it in British eyes. And while we did an awful lot of things that were excellent and good and worthy. We'll also look at those things where we were less than worthy. I would like to say that uh, I have seen the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, and I'm sure that your one will be as beautiful and as good as that one. And thank you very much indeed for talking to us. My pleasure. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we're at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Dot UK.
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, we need to cover one particularly shocking story. I think that you'll agree that most people, even in the non-Jewish world, were very taken aback when the Indonesian earthquake took so many lives. So far to date, it has claimed 1,400 lives. But World Jewish Relief are going to do their part to try and help in this particular disaster. They have launched an emergency appeal. And however sad I am for the reason, I am also delighted to say that joining us on the program to tell us a bit about why World Jewish Relief are doing their part to help this particular incident is Rebecca Singer, who's the Head of Communications and Community Engagement at WJR. Rebecca, first and foremost, I suppose that just in case there is the slimmest chance that anybody hasn't heard what has happened, perhaps you can remind us what has occurred in Indonesia. Well, it was, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was on Friday, the 28th of September, that's a magnitude 7.5 magnitude earthquake hits just off the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. And the earthquake did tremendous amounts of damage. But then also what happened after that was that it triggered a tsunami and that tsunami traveled towards the coast and it traveled up an inlet towards a city called Palu. And as it did that, it seems to have magnified the force of the tsunami. And so when it hit the town, there were waves as high as six meters tall, which virtually destroyed a huge amount of the city. So as well as suffering from the earthquake damage, the people in Palu and also along the coast and in Dongola, which is right on the coast as well, were all hit by this double tragedy. So I'm no geographical expert, but from my limited knowledge to those who don't quite understand sort of why the the double disaster, if you will, struck is because that the earthquake is what ultimately caused the tsunami by sending the shockwaves through the nearby ocean and subsequently, of course, causing all of this devastation and destruction. I suppose that it does beg the question, though, how and why World Jewish Relief need to get involved in that because obviously anyone who listens would be forgiven for thinking that in the title of your organization is it just jews you help of course it isn't but you might like to explain that well we are the british jewish community's humanitarian agency which means that we operate around the world helping jewish communities but also helping those beyond our own community at times of international disaster. And this is one of those such disasters. So previously, we responded to the Boxing Day tsunami back in 2004. We have uh, more recently responded in Mexico after the disaster there and in Haiti after a hurricane and Nepal as well after the earthquake. And what we do is that we respond initially with immediate relief, but then also we stay in the country and we provide ongoing response as well, which means that we enable people to get on with their lives and get back to the position that they were in before the disaster struck, but also to improve their situation. So it might be a livelihood program whereby we help farmers in Nepal to diversify so that when another earthquake strikes or another disaster strike happens, that they are in a better position to cope. We ended our program in Nepal recently, but we're doing something similar in Haiti. So looking at ways that we can help the local population to recover, but also to be better prepared in case disaster strikes again. And can you try and explain a little bit about the relief process? Because I have been to the offices of WJR and I 
I'm not going to speak any less than the truth that I find. It doesn't appear to be a massive team of you there. So I'm guessing you don't necessarily send people from the office to go and set up camp in these disaster areas. How do you coordinate people to go to the disaster zones? And ultimately, what structures do you put in place to help people? So you're right. We have a very small humanitarian response team, which is our humanitarian programs manager, Mirelle and a couple of other people who support her work. She will be on a flight sometimes within 24 or 48 hours. She's not yet in Indonesia, but she's expecting to go kind of in the next couple of weeks. And as with all our programs all over the world, which includes our work with Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, whether that's Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, Belarus, and in places where we respond to international crises, we always work through local partners. This means that we don't have to pay World Jewish Relief staff to go, as you said, on expensive flights or to live in in far-flung places around the world. Local organizations are very well entrenched in their communities. They know the needs very well. They can respond very fast. They know the setup. They've got the local government contacts, and they've got the experience to work in these places. We do a whole series of due diligence tests on these local partners, and we insist on transparency and very high levels of reporting and accountability. And we have tremendous partners all over the world who do the most amazing work for us. And that's how we're able to really work in in all areas of the world and also in Eastern Europe, where we support the world's poorest Jewish communities. Could you guide us through the route that a donation takes, if you like, from the moment somebody clicks that button which says donate now to the recipient? The reason that World Jewish Relief has such a great reputation within the Jewish community is because people really trust us and we have a fantastic reputation for that. People know that when they give money to us, we take great care about where it's going. And as I said, we have huge levels of reporting and accountability to make sure that that money is used in the right way. So when money comes in for a for a, a donation, when a donation of any kind comes in, what we do is that we then send that money to our local partners. And we have a programs team who monitor how that money is used. So if the money is coming in for our general work in Eastern Europe, then we work with partners who provide livelihoods or home care or social and welfare support for older people there. And if it's for international disasters, after the due diligence has been done, we will send the money out to them and we work with them to understand how it's going to be used. And we also send our humanitarian programs manager out there to determine the best other ways that it can be used as well. So the the fact that we are smaller is actually a positive. It's a benefit because we can work in areas which might have been overlooked by the bigger international NGOs. And it also means that we can reach people who might not have already been reached by the aid coming from the much bigger organizations. This seems to be a most marvelous thing that you do. I wonder if perhaps greater publicity was made of the help that you give to people, because it would be a great advantage for people outside the Jewish community to know what you're doing. Yes, and we've worked very hard at that. And any help that you can give us with that would be much appreciated. (laughs) That's wonderful. We love people talking about the work that we do. We have had a lot of coverage recently, whether that's in The Guardian or the BBC on the BBC Radio 4's The Sunday Programme. And if you go to our website, worldjewishrelief.org, and go to our news section, then you'll find more information on that. 
Also, what people are talking about recently is our tremendous archive, where we're enabling people to discover parts of their family history that they might not have previously known about. And that as well was re- recently featured on the Judge Rinder Who Do You Think You Are show on BBC, on BBC One. So there are different ways in which we're reaching out, but we are always looking for people to talk about us. And if you'd like to tell people about our work, that would be tremendous. Well, I hope that's what we're already doing, as you have done so far. I wonder whether or not I could ask something that I hope you don't think comes across as too flippant. But when you have a disaster zone such as what's happening in Indonesia at the moment. How do you actually get there? You mentioned about your colleague being flown out there. I wonder just how with no infrastructure in place and roads all damaged and blocked, how one even gets to that particular zone. Well, the situation at the moment is is horrendous. And I think when we all looked at the pictures on the TV and listened to the descriptions on the radio or in the newspaper, I don't think anyone could not be moved by the scenes of total destruction and devastation. People have lost their homes. People have lost their lives, their families, their livelihoods. It is a, just a, a horrible situation to be in. And as the situation plays out, we are closely monitoring it and we're, we get a lot of information from the partners that we'll be working with as well. So we won't send someone out there until we believe that the situation is safe for them to go and that we know that they can get to the places where the help is being distributed as well. We carefully assess and monitor the situation as it goes on. But the most important thing is that the people who are affected by the disaster are helped and the donations from the British Jewish community can enable us to to do that. So if people would like to donate, they can go to worldjewishrelief.org forward slash Indonesia, or they're very welcome to call us. We have people manning the phones throughout the day and they can be reached on 020-8736-1250. Rebecca, do you know there is one thing that all of us as Jews are taught, and that is tikkun olam, repair the world. And I think that World Jewish Relief epitomizes that. So from all of us, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. If you'd like any more information on any of the stories or indeed the guests featured on this episode of The Jewish Views, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And I'm very pleased to say that I have a small eight-year-old boy opposite me, and we're going to talk about aeroplanes. Jack Azaguri Slattery has had a very exciting time recently, haven't you, Jack? Tell me about aeroplanes. How long have you loved aeroplanes? My favourite plane is EasyJet Academy. And EasyJet Academy was only fun work. And my favourite EasyJet Academy was my only hope. Was your only hope of getting near an aeroplane? Yes. Right. And I understand you've been drawing them as well. Is that right? Yes. When did you start drawing aeroplanes? When you were a little... By my drawing book. Yeah. Because I love drawing in my drawing book. Because drawing, I do the Ninkinonk and Easy Dread Academy and everything. Is it very difficult to draw an aeroplane? No. <laughs> what do you start with? The wings? Yeah. Yes. What about the engine? And do you put the pilot in as well? Yes. Now then, Debbie, 
How did they find these drawings that Jack had done? How did EasyJet get hold of them? I started putting his drawing up online, Facebook or Instagram. I put most of his drawing online and a parent of the school picked it up. They very kindly forwarded it on to the company who got in touch with me and they were very excited to see his drawings and they were impressed because of his age, of how well he drew. And it started from there. And so they got in touch. The training academy got in touch with me, one of the duty managers there and Emma, and she was very kind to organize a date for us to come just for Jack, which is really, really nice. Now we get to the exciting bit. Jack, tell us what happened when you got to the academy. What did you have to do and where did they take you? I've taken them into the car. My favourite car is red and everything came fine. Good. But what happened when you got to the EasyJet Academy? Did they actually take you into a plane? Yes. And what did you do when you were inside it? Because I was a pretend plane and I was driving all through the town. And I got from holidays to the water. And I was the pilot. You were the pilot? Yes. When you grow up, Jack, do you want to be a pilot? Yes. Yes. When I grow up, I want to be a pilot. Excellent. And I want to drive the plane to Gibraltar called EasyJet. <laughs> right, you're very good publicist. <laughs> I was going to say, easy, easy. Yes, 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 yes. I should point out, Easy Jess are not paying us for this interview, but it doesn't matter. I'm sure they'll benefit greatly from it. Deborah, what's next on the agenda for Jack? We entered Jack in an art competition last year. It's called the Visual Open Art Competition, and he had a number of drawings entered. And two of them were selected. All of aeroplanes? No. So Jack Jack does a variety and it, it, his drawings have changed throughout the years. He, he started drawing really the first drawing that he produced that was really impressive when he was five years old. He loves trains, the underground, locomotives, buses, anything kind of transport related, I would say, fascinate him. And we did a competition last year, which was the National Open Art Competition, which is, was held in Chichester. He was also a finalist and he won an award for that, which was fantastic. We went to Chichester. His art was exhibited in a large hall with hundreds of people there. It was quite impressive and he handled it very well. And he really appreciated that he had done something special, which was when I realized that I could maybe try again and enter him again in another competition. The recognition he gets makes him, gives him great joy. So we're continuing in that path and this is now... The next competition, which is the visual open art competition, two of his drawings. One is of a, a scene of Thanksgiving, which we go to America a lot because my brother lives in New York. So he produced a beautiful picture of the kitchen and it's quite stunning. And then the other one is of a train from his school, from the backyard of his school, one of the London Underground. That's black and white. And that's happening in October and November. So, Do you find, and forgive me for asking this, but do you find the fact that Jack has ADHD actually enhances his visual performance and because they have such powers of concentration? Well, actually, autism and ADHD, but they, they're two, they don't fall under the same spectrum. Autism, I would say, because with both diagnoses, Jack has his own struggle, but then it comes with maybe a different perspective, certain things. So I wouldn't say concentration is 
it helps concentration because that's one of the main issues of autism and ADHD is children find it hard to concentrate. But for some reason, some children with autism have a great aptitude to numbers or a wonderful memory or, and in the case of Jack, it's his art. Actually, we, we live in Camden and we're under the care of Camden Council and we did a course which most people, parents with autism take on and they explained to us that actually 1% of children with autism have a gift, a real gift, which were, it was interesting to hear. And in terms of Jack, it's really his art that's, shine, that's shining through. So Indeed, that's what comes across. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, very forcibly. Yes. We're very proud. We're very proud of him. Um, we want to, we, we, we don't push him in any way. It all comes from him. He'll go months without drawing and then all of a sudden he'll start again. I can't do lessons for him or anything like that because he doesn't really follow instructions. So it all comes from him whenever he wants. Right. And, you know, if in his future we don't really know how independent he'll ever be. But if that can help him in his life, if he wants to do something with art in his life, then I can set him up. I think that there is quite a simplistic view of ADHD, which I will be perfectly honest, I have been guilty of thinking myself in the past, oh, surely it's just a lack of discipline. It's someone who's a little bit misbehaved and needs to be taught a lesson. Why is that? And I know this now, but why is that the wrong view to have? There's two things here. There's autism and ADHD, but ADHD, for example, I know quite a few children who have that. And it's really... It's a misunderstood condition because it's really it's the children really cannot concentrate for a long period of time. They need lots of break. They need things adapted around them, and it just becomes too much. There's a wonderful cartoon that a gentleman produced called "Amazing Things Happen," and it's a cartoon that's a, that I've shown to many parents to try and explain to them. It's particularly about autism, but it, some of the traits of autism apply to ADHD children. And often you will find that children like Jack with autism have ADHD. They, they intertwine in many ways. And it explains how they get overloaded with sensory issues. And it's, it's their, their brains are wired differently. So everything is just too much. And little things for us, like going to the supermarket or queuing in a bank or going to a shop, anything like that can be a real struggle for most children. So if you place them in a school environment, for example, if we're talking about school and the amount, the demands that are put on children in schools anyway, with the children with those conditions are really struggle and, and it's, a, it's a big problem. How does he get on in his present school? Are they supportive? Amazing. I have to say we, we had a number of schools and they weren't, it wasn't all plain sailing. And I think for a parent in the first place to come to terms with when your child is diagnosed is very, very hard, very hard. You go through denial, you go through all sorts. And it's for us, you know, it, 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 it's very, very hard for parents. So when you find a school, he's currently at Sinai Jewish Primary School that actually embraces the children that come in, help them, support them regardless if you have funding coming through or not, because it, take, it takes years to get funding from the government. It's very hard. I mean, it's, it's there, but you have to work hard at it. But Sinai has been amazing. They've been very, very caring. And you're, when somebody is fortunate to find that, you know, we try and help them as much as possible. Indeed. You know, there's a word that you've used a couple of times throughout this that you've said specifically in Jack's case, and that's the word struggle. Yeah. But I wonder what's it like as, as you as a parent trying to obviously help and do the best you can as any parent would for their child and knowing that 
sometimes it's going to be slightly more difficult than, say, other parents. How does that make you and what's your struggle? I try to take one day at a time where maybe my husband struggles in a different way where he would see things he's trying to think too far ahead and when you try and do that as a, with a parent of a, as a parent of a child with autism it's it becomes too overwhelming because you don't know what the future holds you have to it's, act in the moment so i try mm. to do that i have learned to arm myself with immense amounts of patience which i didn't know I was capable of to tell the truth because i'm not a uh, i'm patient to a certain extent but with a child like jack you need a different level and i think the hardest thing for me was really finding a network of people that i could rely on that I can go to for advice it was once I started school and I started meeting people who were in the same situation as me it became a lot easier and this is what I try to do presently where we are now at school is whenever there's a parent who has a child with a new diagnosis we really try and help and support them listen to them and try and help them through the maze of the administration that goes with it as well with autism when you try and get support from different organisation. It's a minefield, it really is. I can well imagine. It is. You did say that you had a younger child, I think? Or, yes. Or, and how do the siblings get on? How does the younger child... I assume the younger child hasn't got a No, he's, he's more... He's typical, what, what they call typical child. He's very... He, David is four and he has... An amazing aptitude for he's gonna uh, lots of empathy for Jack. He's essentially he's the older brother now Is already he? in terms of communication and understanding his environment and following instructions and just everyday life. He's a lot older than Jack already. So I can't help but notice though that you've got some books in front of you. Is this actually examples of yeah. Jack's artwork? Yes. Yeah, so, so can I, we have a look? Sorry, just sure. Sorry, Debbie's just passing this over to us now. Oh, my goodness. Do you know, I've seen some of it online, but how many drawings are there in here? You've actually got a whole little book going. Oh, here. he has a whole portfolio. He draws constantly. It's quite, I, I try and produce a book a year. So, so far we have two and I give him as gifts or the intention is to produce larger amount for a show I'm trying to put together to raise money for my son's school and auctioning some of his drawing, but yes. I don't think, it, well, I've got the other book in my hand and I don't think you're going to have any trouble. <laughs> so that's the older one, that's the latest amazing. one, yeah. <laughs> and it isn't just easy, Jess. I've no. Got, I've got drawings of <laughs> oh, Brit no, no. British Airways and something called Canada Airlines. Yeah, Wizz Air, they're Spell all there. C-A-N-I-D-E-R. And, and trans <laughs> Transport for London hasn't fared too badly oh, out yes. of this as well. What strikes me is that it's the sense of perspective. I mean, I, in my past, you know, I've had a go at drawing. I'm not brilliant at it, but it's one thing that strikes me is the sense of perspective that Jack has got when he draws and how, frankly, spot on it is. It's I know, amazing. I don't know how he does it. I mean, I try to create a brand around his name called Jackito Art, like you can see on the on the cover of the book. And that's where all his, when you go online, that's how you find most of the drawings. I was going to ask, you're on social media, aren't yes, you? Yes, yes. So people yeah. can have a look for themselves. Yeah. So it's, it's... Oh, well, I'm pleased about that because I should hate it just to be restricted to three. <laughs> they really are absolutely... But he's done amazing. And through his drawings, I've managed to, to get in touch, like Transport for London have been very good at kind of giving him praise and then also Metroline the bus company they donated a bus for the school through all this to convert into a library so it's been quite a journey for him and for me but it's uh, yeah 
Deborah, we could go on talking about this all <laughs> afternoon. It's been such a pleasure to meet Thank you, you and to meet Jack. Thank you for coming. Thank you in. very much. Thank, Thank you very you. much for your time. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, which this week comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence of Kinloss United Synagogue. God looked at creation and called it good, but very often as we look at the world around us, we don't see it that way. We're astounded by its beauty, but also its glaring defects. Stunning scenery and a picture postcard paradise are blighted by famine, disease and strife. It is these that often call us to question how God can be all good, the epitome of perfection. Moreover, while the Bible represents the creation of mankind as God's crowning achievement, to all appearances we're probably the most flawed and destructive of God's creatures, a beta to be worked upon before it is ready for general release. Can something with a potential to cause such destruction really be called very good? As our commentators wrestle with this question and they explain the very purpose of creation, they don't see it that way at all. They ask, what would be the wonder in an all-powerful God creating an all-beautiful universe? Indeed, if there were no flaws, there could be no appreciation of perfection. If you look carefully at the text, you see in Genesis chapter 1 that God creates mankind out of nothing. Mankind is male and female and in God's image. God instructs this creation to populate the world and to dominate it. In Genesis chapter 2, the story is told over again, but this time man is rolled out of the dust of the earth, the breath of life is breathed into him, and then woman is extracted from within him. This more earthy creation is charged with the responsibility of working the world and tending it. So we have a strident and godly creature zapped into existence in chapter 1, and a far more humble one in chapter 2. For secular scholars, this presents evidence of different creation myths being clumsily juxtaposed in our Bible. For our biblical commentaries, by contrast, the two accounts highlight the complexity and different dimensions of creation. On a physical level, we're merely organic matter, part and parcel of our environment, charged with the responsibility to develop it, cultivate it, and protect it. However, and moreover, we're also created on a spiritual level, in that we bear the image of God and we're endowed with phenomenal capacities of creativity, imagination, communication and reason. Wisdom is the ability to be discriminating with power and it's our mission to use these gifts and powers for good. We're taught that God created the world in such a way that we would become his partners in the completion of creation. This mission is known as tikkun olam, the repair or perfection of the universe. The world is not perfect. It's our duty to make it so. Often we look at flawed creation and ask, where is God? After the sin in Eden, God looked at the world he'd given us to perfect and he calls out, where are you? Where is mankind? In the words of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, as long as there is hunger, poverty and treatable disease in the world, there is work for us to do. As long as nations fight and men hate and corruption stalks the corridors of power, as long as there is unemployment and homelessness, depression and despair, our task is not yet done. And we hear, if we listen carefully enough, the voice of God asking the first humans, where are you? Thank you to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence of Kinloss United for our thought for the week. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Rebecca Singer, the Right Honourable Lord Pickles and Deborah Azaguri-Slattery and her son Jack.
Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Diana Toman. Me, Phil Dave. And me, Clive Roslin. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.